Welcome to Pick Me Up, I'm Scared, the podcast. I'm your host, Madeline. And I'm your co-host, Kenna. And today I wanted to talk a little bit about the 42069 work week. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> so, Kenna, tell me what you know about the 42069 work week. I can't remember what it is. I can't remember if we make $420 an hour and work 6.9 hours or 69 hours in a pay period. Okay, so it's four hours a day, five days a week, 20 hours a week total at $69 an hour. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, so that comes out to $71,760 per year. Whoop, whoop. And I know this started as a joke, um, but honestly, the more I think about it, I think it's kind of a good idea. Oh, for sure. Um, Because like the HUD designation for a middle class income where we live in LA starts at like $63,000 a year or something or $65,000 a year. Um, But the LA County median income is $77,000 a year. So $71K a year on this is actually pretty in line with like a median income where we are anyway. So then that just leaves the idea of how plausible is it for a business to function with a 20 hour work week? Whoa. I mean, probably I have worked some desk jobs in the past. I'm not going to say what, but sometimes I'm like, hmm, I feel like I only do four real hours of work a day. And then kind of like being like, I mean, I would always do stuff to fill the time. I'm like, definitely when I was younger, like, I don't know if there is such a thing as a good worker, because I'm kind of like against the idea of like work, but I would find pleasure in being like, okay, I'm done with this. I'm going to go make a spreadsheet or something just because I'm a nerd. But I feel like a lot of the work that I was being paid to do was could probably be done in a lesser amount of time. Also, because... Me personally, I am very productive in short bursts. I have like, I, I'm I'm like a sprinter. I'm not a long haul runner. So actually, um, you would be very normal for all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's interesting that you said that about the four hours a day, because in 1974, the UK government uh, limited the work week to three days per week to save money. Um, and production only dipped 6%. And uh, similarly, a poll came out of UK workers around the same time. And most UK workers admitted that they only work three hours a day in their office. So that makes sense that limiting the work week didn't actually contribute to that much of a dip in productivity because they were only productive around 15 hours a week anyway. Yeah, also, I mean... How productive do we need to be? Aren't we like at the most productive humans have ever been for like output, like in the economy ever? We are. And our wages have not gone up to match that whatsoever. Um, There's that thing floating around. I've seen the number vary uh, depending on the source between $24 an hour or $27 an hour is what the minimum wage today in the United States should be if we measured it the same way they did in 1968, which was as a percentage of worker productivity and GDP. Yeah, I saw that too, where it's like, I that makes sense because I remember my mom who is a baby boomer was like yeah when I was in college I just worked a part-time job as like I think a journalist and um I paid my tuition and my rent for my one-bedroom apartment versus when I was in college I worked full-time went to college full-time 
took out student loans for the $30,000 of tuition I had after doing uh, two years of community college and getting a ton of scholarships for being, um, you know, like the valedictorian of my high school, captain of my debate team, graduating in three years. So that's why my tuition was knocked down to only $30,000, where most of my classmates paid over $100,000. But then nobody in my family had good enough credit to co-sign on the student loan. So I had to enter a lottery where the school could potentially co-sign on my student loans if I won. I randomly did win. And at the end of all of this and fighting with FAFSA and this huge nightmare of funding, I ended up getting enough student loans covered to pay my tuition except for $100, which I paid in cash. And yeah, I had to work a full-time job living in San Francisco, where my college was, to pay for all of my living expenses. And now, years later, um, I did the math once. I think I've paid like 50K towards my student loans, and I still owe 10, even though I only took out 30. And the interest, of course, I think was around 6.8%, but they're all federal student loans. So that was the federally set interest rate when I took them out to go to college. So now, uh, yeah, it's significantly harder to be able to pay to live, let alone do things like pay for college on the average income that people have. Oh, yeah. Like if I wouldn't have taken out loans and my parents took out loans, there was no way I could have afforded college just even working full time. Right. I mean, like, I was working, I, the only job I could get, you know, when you're, like, you know, 18 is, like, a barista. And in Colorado, I think the minimum wage at the time was, like, $7 an hour. Yeah, like, that sounds right. Like, it's, I'm, like, like, when I think about my first job, I mean, I don't want to say when this was, but it was, like, minimum wage for people, like, and I was, like, 14, it was, like, $5. Wow. Well, okay, so thinking about all of this, I I got really into the idea of shorter work weeks. Um, Kenna and I work together, and we have a four-day work week. Yes, it's very nice. It's very nice. We work 32 hours a week, and I feel like we get all the same amount of work done on a 32-hour work week that we did on a 40-hour work week um, many years ago when I did a full five days at the business. Uh, And a couple weeks ago, we actually had a really gnarly work week, and all of us had to come in for a fifth day, which we hadn't done in like a year and I remember feeling like such a baby afterwards because I was like my body's tired my brain's not working how are people doing five days of work week it's like inhumane you know oh my goodness like when I was working retail working over four days a week at retail would break me it's too much it's like too much on my brain and so that's yeah I salute anyone who can work retail over four to five days a week it's a lot it's a lot lot. and I know I I just felt my privilege in that moment I really understood how the four-day work week can like change your life so I wanted to um, give a little history of how we got to the five-day 40-hour work week as being the standard in the United States So way back in the 1800s, um, it was really normal for factory workers to work over 100 hours a week. There was a standard six-day work week typically, and people would work a standard 10 to 16 hours per day. And this was pretty normal. So in 1818, labor activist Robert Owen was one of many people advocating for an eight-hour workday, which by comparison was so much shorter, right? It was like half of what they were accustomed to working. And everybody thought it sounded, you know, undoable, right? Because who who would think that you could cut your workday in half, basically, from 16 hours to eight and still accomplish the same amount of things? 
Um, and Robert Owen was advocating for this and said, you know, eight hours for labor, eight hours for recreation, and eight hours for rest, which seemed pretty rational to a lot of people at the time, but it wasn't super popular. So um, I know you've probably seen the bumper stickers that are like, love your weekend, thank a labor union. Have you mm-hmm. seen these? Um, I have not, but um, I do remember learning in school that um, eight hours was like, yeah, like, a big win. A, a big, big win. win. And it, I think uh, along with the eight hours, no more child workers. Yes. I feel like I remember a teacher being like, like in like second grade being like, you kids, you you should be working or you could have been working. And I was like, <laughs> in a fa- I was like horrified. I was like, I am not trained for this. <laughs> okay. So in 1866, the National Labor Union in the United States proposed a federal law mandating an eight hour workday. It failed, but in 1867, Illinois passed it statewide. However, companies refused to comply, leading to a massive strike in Chicago, which we now know of as May Day. It's the first May Day. So in 1869, just two years later, the federal government passed a law issuing an eight-hour workday for government employees, which kind of inspired private sector workers to start pushing for the same. Like, we want the same thing the government workers are getting. And then throughout the 1870s and 1880s, labor unions continued to demand this eight-hour workday uh, with recurring widespread strikes every single May Day. Every single year, they repeated those strikes. In 1886, labor unions called for a national strike, resulting in 300,000 workers striking for the eight-hour workday. In Chicago, there were fights against the police for days, culminating in the Haymarket Affair on May 4th, uh, in which protesting workers threw a bomb at the police which caused the police to fire on the crowd, killing at least four, some sources say six people, and wounding dozens more. And eight anarchists kind of took the fall for this. They were convicted of conspiracy following the protest, and nobody could prove that they threw the bomb, so they instead tried to prove that they made the bomb that was thrown. Seven of these eight anarchists were sentenced to death, and uh, one to 15 years in prison. Of the seven sentenced to death, two had their sentences commuted to life in prison by the governor, one committed suicide, and the remaining four were hung on November 11th, 1887, including the anarchist organizer August Spies, who I actually read a lot um, of his writings when I was in high school. Uh, And he, in reality, had attempted to quell the violence at the protests. In fact, there was this one flyer going around Um, that said, you know, come prepared, like bring arms, be ready to fight. And August Spies was supposed to speak at that protest that that flyer was for. And he told the people who made the flyer, like, I will not speak if you have this on here because he knew it would be an excuse for the police to just kill all these workers Mm -hmm. if it looked like it was inciting violence. And he actually made them change 20,000 flyers before he agreed to speak. But of course he took the fall for the violence that did happen and he was hung which made him kind of a martyr in the, in the movement. This is, that's so awful. I it know. It reminds me, in college I actually read, side note, a really great um, uh, essay. It's like Reflection on the Way to the Gallows. It's about oh. a Japanese woman who is who was an anarchist um, who was hung for her political views. And it's definitely worth reading. Yeah, so um, following the Haymarket Affair, all these anti-union sentiments started spreading. So everyone, of course, took the sides of the police. People started donating a ton of money to their local police, which... Oh my gosh. Workers were like, yeah, these 10 plus hour workdays are fine. I don't know what all those people were so mad about. So this gained a ton of public sympathy and uh, kind of squashed the idea of the eight 
our workday. Uh, and in 1890, the U.S. government began tracking the hours that America's working, and that's when they found that the average work week for a manufacturing employee in the U.S. was 100 hours per week, usually the 10 to 16-hour shifts I mentioned over six-day work weeks. So in 1916, Congress finally passed um, an act establishing an eight-hour workday for interstate railroad workers. And then, just 10 years later in 1926, Ford Motors changed their 48-hour work week to a 40-hour work week, lending legitimacy kind of in the private sector to this idea. And of course, we all know they reported a huge um, increase in productivity as a result of this. So in 1938, Congress passed the Fair Labor Standards Act, limiting the work week to 44 hours. And then it was amended in 1940 to a 40-hour work week. So took from, you know, the early 1800s to 1940 to make this the standard kind of thing. Uh, but now over half of managers in the U.S. work over 40 hours per week regularly. American workers average 47 hours per week, and many people claim to work 60 to 80 hour work weeks, all despite the fact that shorter work weeks are proven time and time again to increase worker productivity and company profits. Yeah, I think there is this um cultural thing in America where the more you work the like you have more clout you're like well I work like six I work 60 hour weeks like it's I don't know I mean some people like probably have to or else their their jobs will be mad and they risk their employment but some people it's like a, a, a badge of honor and I think sometimes that's strange when you look at you know the math and you're like well you're only productive for this long in the day your brain is only functioning this you know much it's like how they finally learn that like actually multitask you can't multitask multitasking is bad for your brain like yes so this is a real thing actually a lot of people in certain sectors claim to work that 60 to 80 hours a week as a badge of honor and when it's looked into more um some people found that a lot of these people are lying. They're not actually working that much. Of course. And the people who are working that much are just like you said, they're not actually productive during this time. It's instead kind of like the expectation or cultural norm of the industry that they feel that they have to adhere to and they wear it like a badge of honor. And I think too, like, I mean, another thing about, I have been an overworker in the past and it was, it was kind of an anxiety thing. Well, it's like, well, if I'm busy, then it fills the void and oh that's me all the time I'm yeah right now <laughs> I like to be busy <laughs> but uh, it's not it's not good for you for addressing the you know the core issue no um so Adam Grant who is a professor at Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business studies productivity in the workplace and has found that in six hours workers are more productive than in eight doing t- uh, due to them being unfocused in the eight-hour workday. So a six-hour workday with focus is way more productive than the eight because you're more likely to lose your focus throughout the day. So he has actually advocated for a 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. standard workday rather than 9 to 5. And the CDC has found that people who work uh, overtime regularly are less healthy than those who don't. They're at increased risk of things like cardiovascular health issues and depression. So those who work more extended hours and more overtime are also less likely to be productive than those who work less. And productivity specialists show that shorter workdays on the whole reduce errors and accidents. And additionally, uh, there's this thing called Parkinson's Law, which I think you kind of touched on earlier when you're talking about your days working the office jobs. 
which say that um, workers expand their tasks to fill the time available for its completion. So for example, if you could do something in an hour, but you're off in two hours, you'll just spend two hours doing the one hour task, even though you really don't need to, which makes sense when you consider that in 2016, that thing we talked about with the average office worker in the UK admitting that they only work around three productive hours per eight hour workday, um, they instead spend their time on social media, reading the news, talking to coworkers, and they just kind of fill their time. Even though they only need three hours to do all their work, they just kind of make it stretch to eight any way they can. So yeah, theoretically, if you cut people's work week to 15 hours per week, you could see no change in productivity whatsoever. And I have some examples of people who have tried to reduce the work week throughout history. Um, the Melbourne Institute of Applied Economic and Social Research found that people are actually most productive when they work three days per week with cognitive performance declining after 25 hours per week due to stress and fatigue. So mm -hmm. this kind of idea that, you know, a three-day work week less than 25 hours is when people are operating at peak performance. And there's this organization called NEF that is uh, currently advocating for a 21-hour work week globally, citing the need to recognize that economic growth is not sustainable due to energy consumption. Hmm. So when you have people working um, more, what they're doing is they're usually using more oil to get to work, to drive to work. You have the office lights on longer. It just takes more energy to have people in an office longer, which I think we're kind of seeing too with um, COVID now. Lots of people are working from home and I think companies are seeing they can save money at least on energy bills by yeah. keeping people well, working from the, home. The problem that I've seen working from home is that I, I was reading something where people are actually, their bosses are expecting them to work more because they're from home. And since they don't have the commute, they're like, well, you need to, you can be doing more stuff. Oh, like you're just at home when it's like, no. Yes. I've seen this too. When I was researching this, I found a lot of studies that since COVID people are working from home, which they report liking a lot more. However, their hours have increased like seven hours more per or week. Or to be available at all hours of the day. Yes. Like I, like me personally, I'm not answering any professional email at three o'clock in the morning. No, never, no, ever. it feels no, abusive to my, me. <laughs> never on my time off will I, I will I answer a professional email. I am sorry. <laughs> no, I agree. Um, so eight hours worked consecutively in one day is also actually found to be counterintuitive for our body's internal clocks, uh, like our circadian process, which typically shows that this also reminds me of what you were talking about earlier, how you said that you're like a a sprinter, not a long haul runner. Mm -hmm. um, we're usually productive in two peaks naturally throughout the day. One mid morning, like maybe around 11 a.m., 10 a.m., and one around 5 or 6 p.m. Hmm. So working a consistent eight hour day, you're, you're kind of lulling in the middle of your day. And science shows that the ideal amount of work per week to maintain a positive mental health like outlook is eight hours per week. So science has actually shown that if you're not working at all, um, it's better for you to work eight hours a week than nothing. Like you'll have a better outlook on life, which makes sense to me because I feel like in my fantasy life, if I won the lottery and had millions of dollars, I probably wouldn't want to sit at home doing nothing all day. I'd get really bored and anxious. Um, and I feel like lots of people do experience this, like money currently in a system of capitalism we all exist in, it's the motivating factor for work, right? Like I show up, you give me the money because I need the money to live. 
However, we see like rich people all the time just take on like pet projects for fun because they're bored. Yeah, I I would imagine too that in, in that scenario where I'm like, you know, mega bucks millionaire, I would still want to do something one day a week because I'm like, I feel lonely. <laughs> right. So yeah, so eight hours a week is that ideal state for mental health. And obviously after eight hours a week, your mental health starts to go down a little bit. Um, and at 25 hours per week is apparently like the cliff, the stress and fatigue cliff sets in. So in 1930, uh, John Maynard Keynes, that guy we all learned about in high school, the Keynesian economy, oh, yes. he imagined that by the year 2000, workers would only be working 15 hours a week. Oh my God. I know. I'm like how quaint. I know. <laughs> I'm like, oh. Oh, John. <laughs> um, but during 1974, the UK government did do the thing I mentioned earlier where they limited the work week to three days to save energy. And it did lead to that drop in production, but of only 6%. So in 2000 to 2008, the French government limited the work week to 35 hours, and this resulted in more than half of French employees reporting that they were overall much happier with their lives, which is common sense, right? Like, who wouldn't be happier working less, especially if you're making the same amount of money? So in 2008, when Utah implemented a four-day work week, they reduced carbon emissions by 4,535 metric tons, greenhouse gas emissions by 8,000 tons, and oil consumption by 744,000 gallons. Wow, who would have thought Utah? I know, Utah. Utah surprises me sometimes. I, I love Utah. You know, it's my favorite state. <laughs> I mean, it's so beautiful. It's Being so beautiful. from the West, you know, Utah is... Oh, it's so pretty. It's beautiful. Okay, so in 2017, Germans worked an average of around 400 hours less per year than Americans, but their GDP per hour worked was 107.6 versus just 102.3 in the U.S. So they were also, as science has shown time and time again, more productive on the fewer hours worked. And in 2019, Microsoft in Japan apparently reduced their work week uh, to four days and saw an increase in productivity by 40%. Oh, wow. Yes. So in New Zealand, one company implemented a four-day work week and saw a 7% decrease in stress for their employees and a 20% increase in team management. Oh, engagement, not management. <laughs> <laughs> so in Belgium and Norway, workers already work an average of just 37.5 to 38 hours per week. So this isn't uh, that far out of left field to imagine that a four-day work week or fewer hours on the whole or... The 42069 work week is a doable thing. <laughs> um, so yeah, I I am not a person who hates work. Like I like productivity you and like working. To work. I love to work. Uh, it gives me a sense of purpose. But ideally, I feel like my dream work week would still only be three days per week, five hours per day. If I'm thinking about it. Yeah, mine would probably just be that eight hours. I'd be like, I'm going to do. A helpful thing, eight hours this week. <laughs> right. So I feel like if I'm on the extreme end and I'm like, man, I only want to do 15 and, and I'm the worker bee, you know? Yeah, well, I, uh, I'm like, and the rest of my time, I'm working on my novel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it also deals a lot with like what we consider work, right? This is work in the traditional sense of labor where you exchange like your labor for money, for capital to live your life. But there's all this work too that we do in our communities that's unpaid work, right? So we don't consider like gardening to be work, but... Oh, I feel like it's such 
big work. It is. So you're not getting paid necessarily, but the free time um, spent with a shorter, like regular work week doesn't mean that you're not doing things. It just means you're doing things outside of the employment sector, which still could be beneficial work, especially for your community. Yeah. I was listening to like, I think Fresh Air and David Sedaris, the like famous author, like, because I think now he's probably rich and doesn't have to work. But what he does for in his free time is he picks up trash on the side of the road. And he's like, that is what I do for like, since I don't have to work, I do that. Like I pick up trash on the side of the road and that is what I do for like, I guess that wouldn't be work because you're not making money, but I would consider that like work. Right. It's not like, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's really pleasurable too, but like, I feel like that, like I was like watching some YouTube video about like, anxiety and they're like well people think that you must be anxious in order to work and I was like well duh (laughs) but like then I was like wait but I have done stuff that was like pleasurable and it was technically work and I was like I enjoy this like sometimes I would be like I'm I enjoy sorting these clothes. It feels like knitting. It's like very pleasurable to me. Yes. I mean, I'm like that too. There's lots of things I do in my life that I'm not compensated for, that it is labor. Like this podcast, for example, you know, this is a thing we do because it's fun to be busy and it's fun to do things. And there's also this idea that like moneyless economies wouldn't work. You know, an economy where your labor is not... in exchange directly for money. However, we see examples of these moneyless economies around us all the time because people labor not in exchange for compensation all the time. You have community organizers, you have community activism, you have volunteer work, and you also have things as simple as the tasks you do in your home. We do work in our homes all the time because we know certain tasks just need to be done, like taking out the trash. Nobody pays you to do that, right? But you do that, and that is a form of labor that serves to better your environment. And in that case, your environment, yeah, it's just your house. But people also do this type of work around their communities because they know that it makes their communities a better place to be around their cities. And like the idea of productivity like should take into account those things as well that just make our neighborhoods and our towns and our homes like better places to be for everybody. Yeah, and I think that if that is something that work could shift into, it would just be, I don't know what the term would be, labor or just like helping out your community because not because you feel like you're forced to, but because it feels like the right thing to do. And you it's kind of like, I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to explain. You're better at this. But I feel like, you know, there comes a, a point where there's stuff that needs to be done. Like, oh, this, this street needs to be cleaned or whatever. But it, it would be so nice in a society where you're just like, oh, yes, we just clean the streets and we figure it out and we come together and do that. And we don't think of it as work. It's just something we do to keep things moving and pleasant. Yes. I don't know. No, I like that idea. It actually ties into something uh, I think that's relevant in our workplace because in our workplace, I don't think we have like a strict hierarchy necessarily. Um, I, I wouldn't say so. Yeah. And I feel like a thing we were talking about the other day is sometimes um, because everyone kind of gets paid the same amount. And um, like for their day rate, basically, we do have people who work fewer days by their choice than others. But, um, you know, there's no like strict hierarchy here. So sometimes you might find that you feel like you're doing more work than people around you. And we talked about how the self-regulating way to address that is not to get mad at other people and expect them to do more, but recognize that 
um, in order to preserve your mental health, you might need to step back and do a little less. You know, you might need to take a mental health day off. You might need to reduce your output because all of us have different expectations of work. And I think there's this idea that everyone is supposed to rise to meet the most productive person in a workplace or in a community. Yeah. But that's not always good for everybody. Yeah. Sometimes at a job, I have been the most productive person. Same. And same. When that yeah. happens, I just kind of put on blinders and I'm like, I'm just staying in my own, like I'm, I'm swimming in a pool and, but I'm just staying in my lane and I'm yeah. not looking at the other people who are behind me or in front of me. I'm just doing my laps. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting thing where like our culture has set it up so that there's almost like this pressure that everyone should match the person doing the most. But in reality, often the person doing the most does the most because it's most satisfying to them which is how I operate. I do all this, you know, because it's satisfying to me and I feel like it needs to be done. But I also try to be conscious not to impose those expectations on other people because there's just as much value in being able to say like, that's not worthwhile to me. That's too much work compared to the toll it will take on my mental health. And I'm aware of that boundary in myself. And I set that, like you were saying, like I'm not checking an email for work at 3 a.m. Like I'm just not. And some other people might be like, well, I need to check that 3 a.m. email. But to not force the expectation then that everybody has to rise to the person doing the most, rather like if we respected the boundaries that people doing a good amount to preserve their well-being like internally place, if we were like, wow, that's a cool boundary you set and I respect that. Yeah, it's like, you know, I was reading this book about like chronic illness or and you know a lot of times when you explain to people like oh like I can't work you know this day or I can't do this this day because I have for example like a migraine like I'm a migraine sufferer like I can't work through this and they're like um and imagine talking to your boss and your boss is like well I suffer from migraines but I still work five days a week and it's like well good for you I'm glad you can work through that pain I personally cannot work through that pain it's neither here nor there. I just personally cannot work through that pain, but good for you if you can work through that level of pain. But also we don't know what is going on in each other's heads at any moment. I like just think about like how we don't really know ourselves a lot of the time and how are we going to know the output of someone else and however many factors that makes them more productive or less productive. Like there's no way again that you can quantify that or like I imagine sometimes like if you if your brain was popped into someone else's head for a day, you would be like, ah, you would be on like the worst drug trip of your like entire existence. Yeah. Like, Because I don't I don't I think that if we could view we sometimes would be like, whoa, well, like, it's I have true. No idea. I mean, to a certain extent, yes, we all have relatable experiences, but I try to remember that when. You know, sometimes you're like, ah, this person's being like way less productive than me or ah, like I need to catch up to this other person to be just as good of a worker, you know? Yeah, there's this thing that like petty capitalists try to say is it a thing that can um, debunk like communism and socialism. And it's called uh, the ECP, the economic calculation problem. And it's this idea that a moneyless economy basically could never work because you cannot quantify these um incongruous things so for example like how do you assign the value to an apple versus an an hour spent tilling a field 
like you need money for that is this argument. But to me, I'm like, well, that's not true because you don't need to quantify all of these things. Moneyless economies exist around us all the time. Like in our households, we don't quantify. We don't look and go, well, taking out the trash only takes you 15 minutes of the day. And if I assigned a numeric dollar value to that, it would be $15 times whatever we've decided the base pay rate is for the value of our work in the house. However, when I do the laundry, it takes us, nobody does that in their houses, right? I mean, if, if someone does do that, in your household, you should leave. Yeah, it's just like borderline abusive. Yeah, that you should go. Like I saw some video like at the beginning of COVID where this mom was like telling her kids, like, each of you have to do your chores during lockdown. And for each chore you do, you get one square of paper, of toilet paper. And I was like, What? I was like, Uh, Oh my goodness. Like, I was like, save these children. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing though. It's like, we, we don't even think about the little ways in which we typically, except for in those scenarios, help each other out throughout the day that we don't quantify. Um, And so the idea that like everything has to be quantified to me, that is the fallacy. That is the myth because in our communities, the reality, like you were saying, is that you never know what somebody's capable of doing. So for somebody might be operating at 100% of their personal capability in terms of work, but it might look different than 100% of somebody else's maximum potential capability for work. So how do you quantify that? Like one person might be able to do more labor, but both might be expending 100% of their available energy to do so. And it's it's like, uh, depending on how you look at it, right? Because we're all capable of different things and have different limits. And it's not necessarily the output that needs to be valued. And you can't even begin to try to understand the potential output. So at a certain point, you need to put your human brain on rather than your your number brain yeah. on and say, we're just vibing here, man. We're yeah. just vibing. And to me, like the output isn't important. The important is the existence of a person and how valuable and how lovable every single human on the planet is, whether or not they have the ability to work. Like right. everyone... Like that comes into some like accessibility and disability issues because not everyone can work like in the, in the system that we have designated as work. Right. And they are like everyone who can't work is just as good, just as lovable, just as valuable as people who can't. And we, we all need to remember that when we are in our workplaces sometimes. Yes. And I feel like too, I mean, obviously we're, I feel like we're pretty lucky in our workplace because you can do things like say like, Hey, I'm a lot of people who work in our workplace, um, for background have some sort of health issue that they're dealing with or like an injury or something like that. And we're very like ready and able to say, Oh, that's not a task I can do. Or like, I need to take the day off. And we have these mental health days accessible. We have, you can go take, go to your doctor's appointments. You can say, Hey, my body won't handle this task. I'm not doing that. And I just think about how so many workplaces don't have that. And how many people like you were talking about suffer through working with a chronic migraine issue because the expectation is that they have to, that there's no option not to. Mm -hmm. And how so many chronically ill people have to deal with people not taking their injuries seriously because they're not visible on the outside. Mm-hmm. So their workplaces expect them to just keep doing these things and don't listen, or they don't feel like they have the space to even say, I cannot do this. And then, yeah, obviously we also have the system that I don't know much about, um, but like the forced poverty for people on disability insurance in the United States. where it, So messed up. It's so messed up where they're not able to have more than $2,000 in assets available if they want to continue to receive unemployment benefits. And there's just like this intersection of like 
us trying to figure out what value is in our society. And just like when um, the companies, the, the, I think it's not, I think it was the governments of like Utah and all these places cut down the work week. Um, maybe they did see a slight dip in production, depending on the hours worked. Sometimes you'd see an increase in production, but you also saw a decrease in carbon emissions. So you're like, well, what is the value of that? What's the value of climate change? How do we factor that into our productivity? What yeah, is more important? Because I mean, I've kind of been starting to read Murray Butchin. Yeah. (laughs) I get so distracted. But he talks about how, like, the output of capitalism is unsustainable. Yes. Because you just have to keep getting more and more. You need more and more products to put out there. But what there's only a finite amount of resources, like, on the planet in terms of, like, you know, uh, you know, raw materials, stuff like that. and again, I am not, um, you know, an expert on this, but I just think about like how you can't, that's not sustainable. Like, for example, there's only so much oil in the ground. Right. Like there's only so much this in the ground. And I'm not like a scarcity person, but I just think about how we can't keep increasing the output because it could kill us all. Right. I, yeah. And like, it's so like, I, every now and then I dip dip in and read the news I'm like oh like oh climate change what does it say it's like oh if the temperature raises by a couple more degrees um uh, we can't live by like 2040 or I'm gonna say whoa (laughs) I will still be alive yeah (laughs) like I don't want that to happen like it's horrifying and it's it's very it's existential but it's like (laughs) oh okay but yeah I think that people don't realize like do is the output that we have right now is it sustainable is it necessary for our happiness and for our survivability as, you know, humans? Right. And then, well, okay, not to get into the the capitalism rant, <laughs> but, like, it's it's the capitalism thing. It's that, no, like, okay, these the 40-hour work week is not good for people. Um, it's not good for the planet, right? We saw when we cut that down, carbon emissions decreased. And like you were saying, uh, the constant need to increase productivity is not sustainable, um, both for ecological reasons and I think just for like space, right? Like we have a lot of stuff and it just fills up our landfills. Oh like, my gosh, my my um, cynical fear is that the reason why all these billionaires are just going into space are like, we're just going to make Earth into our personal garbage dump and live <laughs> in our space mansions. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it's plausible. We got to do cap. We got to just do capitalism in space. Have the... <laughs> The, the company script in the space mines. Wow. <laughs> like, that's my cynical sci-fi view. I mean, I it's realistic, which <laughs> says a lot, honestly. But yeah, it's like we keep doing all these things. We keep increasing our productivity. We keep being productivity focused. Um, we keep being growth focused all so that we can put more profit in the pockets of the people who own like, you know, the four biggest businesses in the world or whatever, who already have more money than they can ever humanly spend in a lifetime. And I feel like, like, what if we changed the narrative away from productivity and we instead were like, why do we need to be productive? Product. What does productive mean? Yeah. Productive for who and to, to what end? To me, it like, I mean, maybe it goes back to the like, you know, the gross, like puritanical, um, you know, streak in the United States that's like, idle hands make for the devil's playground. <laughs> like, if you're not working, you're going to be doing like 
like crime. You're gonna be doing <laughs> crime and satanic stuff. And I would love to do satanic crime <laughs> instead of working. <laughs> like I really do think that people still think that you're, or they're like, well, if I don't work, what would we do? Like, right? You know, or it's like, yeah, I I do think it's like. Well, if pe- like maybe it's also cynical, but like if people aren't working, they're gonna figure out there's like there's ha- there's stuff happening, you know, that we don't want them to do. Like for especially for the people in power, it's like well, yeah, because we saw that when everybody was home um, during COVID, not able to work, we saw an increase in community action and mm-hmm. activism for sure. Yeah, and that's true. People had time to organize, and you know, things like strikes, they don't. I feel like they don't happen as much anymore, but also our compensation overall when adjusted for inflation has kind of stagnated. And I feel like people uh, are more desperate now. Like people feel like they can't afford to take a day off work. They feel like they can't afford to upset their employers. And, you know, I, I feel like a lot of conservative people think that there's this world in which if a company pays too low, you'll just choose not to work there. But the reality is that all employment is coerced in this system because you need money to live. There's not a reality wherein you have the luxury of being able to turn down a job because it doesn't pay enough, Mm -hmm. especially in a world when all the jobs don't pay enough. Yeah. I mean, I, again, was reading something that I cannot remember, but the whole article is like, well, actually near starvation wages they're not like a bug of the system. They are a feature right. of the system. And um, I do think that that is, yeah, because because people are like, we start raising the wages, what happens next? <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I think this is interesting too, because a, a lot of my life is spelt, uh, spent like looking at my own hypocrisy, right? Because I, like most teenagers, read the Communist Manifesto. Um, you know, and I looked at the system and I looked at capitalism. I was like, whoa, this is really fucked. It's evil. And I kind of had it in my head at a certain point, like never own a business. Like I never, I never want to do that. And then I was sent out to the world, right? Like kind of kicked on my ass, like, okay, good luck, shithead, survive. And it was not easy. You know, I graduated college into the recession. All the jobs I did find were super unsustainable. Uh, At one job, I was literally laid off so my boss could buy a new car, uh, which was wild, like a fancy luxury car. You know, and you kind of look around, you're like, none of this is sustainable and not not to get bootstrappy, but I was like, okay, the only person I can count on, I guess, in this world is myself. And I feel like a lot of people who work for themselves, who hustle for themselves have kind of found this, that like the world is a cruel place where they cannot count on their wages to be sustained or their employers to care about them. And they end up either falling into the gig economy or trying to do some sort of like online hustle, which really is just gig economy adjacent. And then we find ourselves like just struggling, like never getting the the good benefits, the health insurance, the economic Mm -hmm. stability. We fall into this freelancer lifestyle that's super unsustainable. And I feel like, you know, now like, okay, I own a business and to try to think about how you can mitigate the effects of capitalism while still existing in a system of capitalism, I almost feel like... I know it sounds counterintuitive and forgive me, we need more people to start businesses, not fewer, because we need to, first of all, uh, offer competition to these monopolies that are forming where these people are all underpaying their workers because they own most of the workers, right? Mm -hmm. And we need to be the businesses we need to see in the world temporarily anyway. (laughs) Temporarily until utopia comes. Until utopia. We we gotta gotta survive. (laughs) 
We gotta it's survive all, well, in the meantime. I hope it happens tomorrow. That would be very sick. That would be sick. And in the meantime, it's like, how do we build the businesses we wish were yeah. around us? And how- it's all it's all trial and error, you know, because it's it never been done before. Like where we're existing now, like we've, you know, it's so like I feel like we can see like we know it's like oh wouldn't it be great to live in a society where everyone has everything they need and no one is suffering needlessly and everyone's taken care of and loved as like they were their neighbor and all that stuff like we know that that's like the good thing yes but for some reason it just like keeps not happening right so we need to so we don't have like the exact formula, like how does this happen? So we just got to keep trying for it, right? So well, that's my... maybe the formula until the revolution comes is the four twenty sixty nine work week. That's <laughs> 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 what I'm getting at here. You know, <sighs> maybe we can get there. So we wanted to add in an additional segment where we do kind of like uh, an advice call-in show style thing. So if you uh, subscribe to our Patreon for $2 a month, you'll get access to a link where you can leave us voice messages and you can tell us about your troubles in your life, ask us your questions, anything you want, and Kenna and I will respond with our advice. And since last week, we got two voice messages. So we're going to go ahead and use the last part of this episode to play those voice messages and just respond to them. And we'll see how it goes. Hopefully it'll be fun. Hi. Um, So Kenna did mention that she was from a very rural town in Colorado with under 20,000 people. And so am I. I grew up there my whole life. And I thought that was so funny. And I would just love to hear, like, more about that perspective, especially as, like, an alternative person, like, like, growing up in that same area. It'd be so funny if we grew up in the same town, too. Oh, my God. So cute. Uh, us Colorado people. Um, I grew up in a place called Canyon City, Colorado, uh, which has, I looked up, just about 16,000 people um, at this point in time. And uh, it is also known for having all the federal supermax prison. So it is a prison town. Like when I was growing up, like John Gotti, the Unabomber, like the Oklahoma City Bomber, they were all there. So we got like all the celebrity prisoners. (laughs) But it is also a very, it's a very pretty town. And it is very, very weird. Like, uh, it was hard being like an alternative person, um, growing up, just always being a weirdo in Colorado. Um, cause you know, uh, I was like goth, um, uh, in like eighth grade when like Columbine happened. And that was really hard because everyone came after anyone who looked freaky or was like alternative, you know, during that time. That was that was really tough. Did Col- Columbine happen in Colorado? Yes. Oh wow. Yes, yeah. uh, in a suburb of Denver. Wow. Um. So that would like when that happened, it was like parents would be like, you know, you can't, you know, trust Kenna, blah blah blah. I'm like, I'm like a straight A student. <laughs> 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 but there really were a bunch of other like alternative kids like a lot of kids who like came from California and had like you know fancy Californian like taste in like cool music and like 
I weirdly like discovered a lot of like kindred spirits. I knew a lot of people with a lot of good music. I have seen pictures of Kenna and her friend group from like seventh grade also in like the 90s. And can I just say it is like the cutest like group of like weirdo kids dressed in black with like I don't know, like, black eyeliner on, and their skateboards, yeah. and they're all, like, I don't know, somebody's maybe wearing a tool t-shirt, Yeah, so you definitely had a crew. There were the freaks and the jocks, yes. and we were somehow battling, but not really. I think there was always threats of, like, there's gonna be a fight in the park between the freaks and the jocks, but I don't know if that ever happened, really. <laughs> I don't even remember. But as for, like... My favorite story is when you would go to the mall and your mom would take you and there was all this music you weren't allowed to listen to because it was like too freaky. And then you'd like go to the store and try to like find the forbidden music and smuggle it out under your shirt. Oh yeah, I try to find what I was looking for like in like 15 minutes and like put it in like my backpack or my bag. Sorry, mom. Um, (laughs) Yeah, and like go to Hot Topic and like buy stuff and like kind of like smuggle it in my bag so my mom wouldn't see and then she'd be like oh where'd you get that shirt (laughs) but yeah it's like a normal people scare me shirt or something (laughs) totally or like um I made my own like homemade riot girl t-shirt and that's so cool though and honestly I think the only thing that kind of like got me through being a weird person was just I randomly had there were a lot of other weirdos there so it's like I just really really lucked out but you know now there is like social media there's so much stuff online where you connect to to other weirdos online yeah which is really great like I'm like oh thank goodness that's for all the the kids in the small towns that are like too too cool for the small town so the future (laughs) is now right (laughs) hi Madeline and Kenna this is Sabrina from what's the old clothing uh, first of all, very excited about this podcast. I love Madeline's TikToks, so I'm sure Kenna also has some great advice. I'm looking forward to getting to know Kenna uh, parasocially <laughs> through this uh, podcast. Um, my piece of advice is I wanted to know how you make big life decisions in terms of moving for your career. Um, currently, I'm based in the Bay Area, and I've been for years contemplating moving to LA for my business and the sake of growing my business, but I'm really happy here, and it's home. I'm from here, so I'm curious if you, either of you have made really big moving decisions that were hard to do, but for the betterment of your career. And yeah, thank you. Looking forward to it. Hi, Sabrina. Okay, first of all, um, I parasocially know Sabrina as well. And uh, Wasil Clothing is their brand, W-A-S-I-L. And there's a ton of really good... Um, like DIY ethically made, I don't know if it's DIY, it's not DIY, but it's ethically made clothing in a huge size range um, available. And I cannot recommend checking out Wasil clothing enough. So definitely people listening, uh, check that out. Now, as for the question, uh, I was actually in the exact same position you were. So I graduated um, from college with my BFA in fashion design in San Francisco right into the recession. I kind of tried to start my own brand with a friend and a friend of a friend. And people who have followed me online know that that ended catastrophically. The friend of a friend ended up like stealing my identity and taking out credit cards in my name. So that collapsed. And I was still trying to like freelance in order to survive in the Bay Area by working for like bigger designer companies as an apparel designer. 
And the, the gigs were getting fewer and more far between. And then Mervyn's went out of business in the East Bay, which is like a throwback, right? And then you had the market flooded with all these people who had like a decade of experience trying to get jobs for $10 an hour. And there was just no work available. Um, and I ended up actually moving to LA specifically for work because there was more work here. Uh, and I was freelancing. So I don't know if you're freelancing or just doing your own business right now. Um, your, your business is amazing. I love it. And I'm such a fan. But there definitely is more opportunity to freelance in LA if that's something you do to supplement your business. Uh, and if not, if you're just doing your own thing, I definitely think it's easier to have a fashion business in LA than in San Francisco. You have a bigger fabric market available at your disposal. You also have a wider range of models, I think, just because the city itself is larger, so there's more people here. And there's a, a bigger community of other people working in fashion. There's more people you can bounce ideas off of, you can talk to, and there's like a good, almost like healthy competition vibe going on. Not competition, but but just like being able to know you're keeping up with what other people are doing. For example, my business dropped to a four-day work week because I heard that UNIF had a four-day work week and they're based here in LA. And I would not have known they did that if I didn't know people who worked for UNIF. Or um, I was able to raise our employees' wages because my friend who runs iGirl raised her employees' wages. And I was like, oh, I think I could do that too. That's a great idea. So I think having the community kind of helps you set higher standards for your business as well and, and kind of know what the good steps to take are. And you can see other people try things out first and know if things are working for them, if they're not. I don't know. I think that LA is just a better place in general for fashion because it is one of the two main fashion hubs we have in the United States here and New York. And out of the two, LA is definitely cheaper. It's easier to rent spaces to put your stuff. So uh, I took that plunge, but it was not an easy decision to make. Uh, I actually gave myself like eight months. I told myself, I think in February of one year that by next January, I would be living in LA. And it was really hard for me. When I drove a U-Haul across the Bay Bridge leaving San Francisco, I was crying because I loved San Francisco so much. And I didn't think of myself as an LA person. But now that I'm here, I've been here over a decade. I am definitely an LA person. This is an amazing place to be. So I think it's a decision that only you can make. But if you've been thinking about it for a while, uh, I would recommend picking a day in the future, maybe saying by 2023, I will live in LA and just kind of work towards that goal. And it gives you a chance to get more used to the idea. It gives you um, time to still enjoy living in the place where I'm, I'm guessing you love until then. And yeah, that would be... That would be my advice. Kenna, do you have a similar situation? I moved from Portland to um, LA, kind of kind of for work, kind of on a whim, kind of because I just, you know, I felt like my life was kind of exploding and I kind of moved here like a little bit on a whim and also because I just felt like there'd be more work opportunity in LA because Portland rental prices were creeping up um, and I was like, dang, like, I could almost like pay the same amount of rent in LA and make more money. Um, so I don't know if I'm the the right person to ask for that. But, you know, I did have, you know, some growing pains here in LA at first. It was pretty, pretty tough. But now I really love LA. I really like the sunshine. Like I said, I'm from Colorado, which is a very sunny state. Over 300 days of sunshine a year. I did not know that. Yeah, it has more <laughs> sunny days than California. Shocking. So 
I need the sun and that's what I really and I've also just met amazing people in LA that I am my heart is so filled by so and for reference Ken has worked in in vintage for like over a decade so Kenna does work in fashion and there is a vintage market in Portland obviously mm-hmm. but did you find that you were able to do more vintage work here in LA with things like the Rose Bowl and stuff like that oh for sure for sure yeah there's way more opportunity for stuff that I wanted to do which was like so more vintage like I moved to LA being like I will own a vintage store I don't know how I'm gonna do it and I actually did. Granted, it kind of went up in flames, but I business did it. Business partners. Business partners are hard, man. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> the worst. <laughs> I mean, in my case and in uh, your past And in case. my past case, yes. But, um, yeah, I also moved to L.A. being like, well, because for a while I wanted to uh, be like, well, what if I tried being a songwriter? Because I was like, you know, writing music and stuff. And I was like, ooh, well, I can do that in L.A. more than... Poor, you know, there's just all this other stuff, but you know, it it's so hard to decide to move because it is. You know, I when you do move a place, there is always like it's it's hard to explain that like when you move somewhere, even if you like already have friends there, already have connections there, it's still really hard to get your footing. It takes a while. It takes a while. It took me like I feel like almost five years to get my footing in LA. And one of her other friends, uh, she said that someone else told her to expect a five-year adjustment period, which is a big commitment. I think it took me uh, a year to get settled here after I moved. So yeah, I think definitely expect an adjustment period if you come, but um, to try to stick it out. I think it's worth it. I love this place. It's my favorite city in the United States. So Yeah, it rocks here. Yeah, so if you come... Hit me up. What's up? Let's hang. (laughs) If you too would like to talk to us on the podcast, uh, subscribe to our Patreon. You can find us there. We're Pick Me Up, I'm Scared. And for $2 a month, you'll get access to the link where you can leave us voice memos and we'll talk back to you all you want. Um, There's also a $20 tier where you get like merch I designed. Uh, It's kind of a lot of money, but I don't know. Do what you will. Do what feels right. And yeah, we'll be coming back every single week with new episodes. Thank you so much for listening to us and supporting us and loving us. We love you too.